Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi wa kafa wa salamun ala ba'dihi alladhi nastafa amma ba'd. Fa'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inna allaha ya'muru bil adli wal ihsani wa ita'idhi al-qurba wa yanha'anil fahshai wal munkari wal baghi ya'idhukum la'allakum tathakkaroon. Subhana rabbika rabbil azzati amma yasifun wa salamun ala al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadi wa ala Ali Sayyidina Muhammadi wa barik wa sallim Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadi wa ala Ali Sayyidina Muhammadi wa barik wa sallim Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadi wa ala Ali Sayyidina Muhammadi wa barik wa sallim We praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and thank Him for bestowing His favors upon us And we send peace and blessings upon Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam And upon his family and his companions and his wives and his progeny and all those that follow them in their ways. <coughs> this week, we'll do a couple of names this week, also because they are related. Uh, number one is Al-Hakam, and number two is Al-Adal. So Hakam means the arbitrator. Basically, it's the judge. And Al-Adal means the just. So these are two traits and qualities that one requires the other. Not in a worldly sense, because we see that we have judges and people who arbitrate between us that don't have justice. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He is the supreme judge. So Imam Ghazali rahimullah, He says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being al-hakam means that He judges between right and wrong, between righteousness and sinning. He distinguishes between the fortunate and unfortunate. But fortunate and unfortunate here means those who will be rewarded and uh, from those who will be punished. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being al-hakam is the one that judges between all of these things. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that has ordered the universe. This is also something understood from al-hakam. And al-adal is justice. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just in every single thing that He does. That if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does it, then it, it is justice. So we shouldn't misunderstand this and think that the evil that's happening in the world is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is enforcing it. Therefore, if somebody is being oppressive, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, that is just and that the person is justified in that oppression. That's not what is meant here. Because as we mentioned so many times before, the different things that happen in this world are a test and we'll get into that also. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it is mentioned by Imam Ghazali rahimullah. He says that we should not have any doubt in the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, nor should we see any fault in His degree, decree. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises us something in the dunya, promises us something in the akhirah, then don't have any doubt in it. Understand that it will come to pass, definitely, and most certainly. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees something, then we shouldn't see any fault in that thing. Whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed for the world, there is no fault on the side of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for decreeing that. And so what is he decreed? He's also decreed that the hearts have to be content. And he has decreed how the hearts are to be content. He's also decreed that the souls have to be submissive to Allah. Right? Now, <clears throat> one of the things that we have to... Um, it's mentioned in, in the discussions regarding the migration of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi the hijrah that he made from Makkah Mukarramah to Madinah Munawwara, that there's so many uh, lessons to be learned from this migration that took place. And one was a physical journey 
from Mecca to Medina, and a you know leaving. They left Mecca because they were being oppressed, so they left. They made this migration, and one is the spiritual journey. So that physical journey has finished, right? After the conquest of Mecca, people came to the Prophet ﷺ and they said, you know, we want to take bay'ah on your hands, uh, on Hijrah. We want to pledge to you that we will migrate. And he said that migration is over because the land that was oppressing us has become Muslim and they are no longer oppressing us. So that, it's not migration anymore. Now it's just moving. It's not that same type of migration. But he said that a spiritual migration still remains. So some of the lessons that the ulama draw from the migration was <clears throat> freeing ourselves from all types of oppression. Freeing ourselves from the, the bonds that shackled us. And having this sense of freedom to practice our religion and freedom for the soul to flourish. But what is also understood is that we have to, what Islam uh, asks us to do, the freedom that Islam allows us is not under the paradox of what we consider to be free. Right? So what is, the, what is that paradox? The paradoxical freedom, uh, Tariq Ramadan talks about this, that the paradoxical freedom is we allow society to dictate to us what it means to be free. Right? So that's why sisters that wear hijab will be told by the society that you are actually oppressed for wearing hijab. Right? Society is dictating that to us. But that is not what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. Right? Whereas what, what Islam actually does is says, no, that this type of uh, covering yourself, dressing in a modest way, is allowing you more freedom. Right? It is allowing your power to come from something else other than what people who try and force you into uncovering yourself try to give you power through. So this is just one example, right? But so many other examples. We think, oh, Islam, it means to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That means there's no freedom. No, so submission is, is what will give us that freedom, that we will have freedom by submitting ourselves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that that's when our souls will become free. Otherwise, we are shackled by our nafs. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed these things. He has arbitrated between these things, that this is what is truth, this is what is good, and the other path is what is falsehood and what is incorrect. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says in the Qur'an, That is it something, is it from someone other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I should seek as a judge? Should I seek someone other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be hakam, to be a judge, an arbitrator for me? Whilst He is the one who revealed the book to you in complete detail. وَالَّذِينَ آتَيْنَاهُمُ الْكِتَابَ يَعْلَمُونَ أَنَّهُ مُنْزَلٌ مِّنْ رَبِّكَ بِالْحَقِّ And those who we gave them the book, those who we gave them the book, indeed they know that the book was revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in truth, with truth, right? With, with haqq. فَلَا تَكُونَنَّ مِنَ الْمُمْتَرِينَ Do not be from those who have suspicion. Don't be from those who have doubt. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us here that whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed for us, the way He has told us to live our life, we should not have doubt in that because this is decreed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because He knows what is best for us. So this is actually very pertinent to our, our times, right? There's so much happening in the media, so much onslaught and propaganda against Islam. We shouldn't allow that to shake our iman. There are answers to every question. There are answers to every question. 
Not everybody will have the answers to that question, to those, to every single question. I'm not going to have the answers to every single question, right? But the answer is there. We can find it. We can get to it. We can have access to it. We can have find the people who can explain it, right? So, for example, people nowadays they talk about certain things that uh, extremist organizations overseas are doing, and those organizations are trying to justify it, what their actions are, through the Quran and Sunnah. Obviously, whoever, when you're trying to use religion as your, uh, uh, to, uh, when you're trying to use religion to, uh, to control the people, and you want to justify your actions, what are you going to do? You're going to try and prove it through the Quran and through the Sunnah. Just because somebody can make a, 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 what seems to be a reasonable argument using certain hadith, using certain verses of the Quran, doesn't mean they are valid, right? It doesn't mean they are valid. So the problem is that when these organizations do such a thing, when they justify their actions, right, the killing of innocents, right, uh, through, apparently through the Qur'an and through the Sunnah, we should not allow that to shake our iman and say that, oh, they're doing it because in the Qur'an it says that you can do this, they're doing it because this certain hadith says you can do this, I don't know if this religion is correct. You know, that's what it means. Do not have suspicion regarding the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah ta'ala revealed the book and He gave the sunnah of Rasulullah to teach us the methodology of implementing that book. So we should not, we have to always look back to the sunnah of Rasulullah and just because somebody comes with a claim and it seems legitimate, it seems justified, it seems like they're making sense, doesn't mean it actually is. Because you're not going to try and justify, if you're using like Islam for example, or any religion, right? Any, anyone that's gone extreme in whatever religion they might follow, they're going to try to justify their actions through their religion, right? It's not going to, if, if you're trying to convince me as a Muslim that what you're doing is correct, you're not going to try and do it through the Bible, right? Because I'm not Christian. You're not going to try and do it through something outside the religion, because the religion is what I follow, the religion is what I allow to dictate my actions, right? That makes sense, right? So we shouldn't allow these people to deceive us using the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't be those people who doubt. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the judge and He is al-adl. So He has complete justice in everything. If He has decreed it in the Qur'an, He is just in decreeing it. Right? So Imam Ghazali, one of the things he mentions is that um, me, if I give medicine to an individual and they become sick through that medication, I would not be... It would not be justice on my part to have given them that medication, right? So I know this person will get sick by, by taking this medication. I give it to them. That's not justice on my part. However, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to do it, it would be justice, right? If He was to do it, it would be justice. Now, that's kind of hard for us to understand. What we have to do is bring ourselves, we have to have this paradigm shift, right? We have to bring ourselves out of the lens and perspective that we are looking at, right? If, I, if this water is going to cause harm to this individual and I give it to him, I'm not justified, Right? I'm not, I have not shown justice. But if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to do it, there would be some, even if outwardly it looked like it was bad, there would be good in it. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above me, right? I might not be just, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only acts according to justice. It is not, justice is not removed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so sometimes it might take a bit more understanding. It might take more pondering uh, into the matter to understand this. And sometimes we're not going to be able to understand why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does what He does. But this is the framework we have to come at when we, when we look at Islam. Another such verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَاتَّبِعْ مَا يُوحَى إِلَيْكَ وَاصْبِرْ That follow what has been revealed to you and have patience until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives judgment. 
And he is He is the best of judges. So follow whatever has been revealed to you and have patience until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives his decree, until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala judges. Right? That means that we are not going to be, as mentioned, understand everything at the onset. But how many times in our daily life, removed from religion, do we, for example, growing up, or you have a child, you tell this child not to do something. How many times did our parents tell us as we were growing up, don't do such an action? And we wouldn't understand. How many times have we said to our parents that nothing's going to happen? But they're looking from a different experience. They've experienced something, right? They've experienced more of the world than we have, for a longer time than we have. When you become experienced, then you're able to have foresight and insight into something that a less experienced person might not have insight into, right? So a child wants to play around an open door. The parents will grab that child and say, you know, don't play around the open door. Why? Because the door might slam shut on their hand. The child doesn't understand. They say nothing's going to happen. But the parent knows that I've seen this happen so many times, right? So similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees certain things. We might not understand what's happening. We might not understand the wisdom behind it. But, وَاصْبِرْ حَتَّى يَحْكُمَ Allah. Have patience until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives judgment. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in another place of Qur'an that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a set measure for everything. Right? Surah Talaq. Right? We mentioned this last, we mentioned this some time ago. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a set measure for everything. Another such verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنِ الْحُكْمُ إِلَّا لِلَّهِ عَلَيْهِ تَوَكَّلْتُ وَعَلَيْهِ فَلْيَتَوَكَّلِ الْمُتَوَكِّلُونَ This is in Surah Yusuf. That Yaqub al-Islam is telling his sons that judgment is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Upon him do I place my trust, and those who have trust should place their trust upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is how we have to view what is happening in the world. This is how we have to view our life. That whatever is happening, there is benefit for us to take from it. Even if it is the worst of situations, outwardly, there is still benefit we can take from it. So Imam Razi rahimullah, he said that regarding al-hakam, this is sort of the counsel that Imam Ghazali gives also regarding, uh, regarding this name, that one should sever his heart from the future and surrender his conviction Surrender his conviction to that which uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed. Meaning, that whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed, that will come to pass. What will this do? This will allow us to live a more content life. So, does this negate that we should strive and make effort for things? No, it doesn't negate that. We mentioned regarding the name Ar-Razaq, that uh, the hadith that Rasulullah mentioned, that if people were to have trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as they are meant to, right? That, uh, the, the amount of trust that is deserved, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is deserving of. They would, they would be like the birds, that they leave in the morning hungry and they come back full. But what did we also mention according to that hadith? Understanding is not that you don't do anything and say, well, Allah ta'ala has already decreed how much I'm going to eat, what my sustenance will be, so I have to sit back and do nothing. Because those birds don't sit back and do nothing. Those birds, they leave their nest in search. They make effort. So, we should have contentment with, Allah, with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed, right? And how He has ordered the world and what He has set for our path. Have contentment in it, but also strive for that goodness, right? And then if you come up short and you put in all your effort, don't be angry with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Be content. Try and take lesson from whatever, wherever the shortcoming was, but be content that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had some reason for me to seemingly come up short. Seemingly come up short. And he says in the Qur'an in one place that you, you, you know, a thing might happen and you think it's good for you, whereas it's bad for you and vice versa, right? That something bad might happen and you think, or something might happen, you think it's bad for you, but it's actually good for you, 
This is that divine wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we, don't, we might not understand. And so Rasulullah in a hadith, Imam Razi mentions that regarding this, that one who realizes that there is wisdom in whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees will see calamities as less important. So if you understand that look, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed this for a certain reason, whatever calamities befall you, you will, be ha- you will have more contentment with it. You will know that this calamity will come to an end and the purpose of the objective of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be fulfilled and life will go on, right? So there will be that contentment. Imam Ghazali says that the one who realizes this will understand that there is no need to worry about anything. He will be, and then he tells us that we should have, we should be modest in our aspirations, we should be content, satisfied, and we should always remain calm and not let anxiety overtake us. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is what decreed it. He's the one who decreed this thing, right? So if a, you know, sometimes you might go for a job, okay, and you don't get the job. Yes, it gets difficult. I'm not saying that somebody who feels a little, gets a little bit of that anxiety, that man, I didn't get this job, and now how am I going to, you know, I'm getting low on money. It's not like it's sinful or something like that, right? That's part of Imam Ghazali, the beauty of his writing, is that he writes from a very tarbiyah standpoint, a nurturing standpoint, to how to build up our iman, how to nurture our minds. That, that anxiety might come, okay? You're not accountable for having that anxiety. But try to have contentment, in the fact that it happened. And know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a set measure for it. And then continuously try, right? Uh, uh, go after, have your, uh, ex- uh, what's it called? Exert your efforts again. So Imam Ghazali, he says that we should not feel, our count- the counsel is that we should not feel angry over somebody who wrongs you. And don't demand, accept what Allah has made lawful for you, and subject yourself to the judgment of reason, and subject reason to the authority of divine legislation. So that's a little process there, right? If somebody wrongs you, number one, don't be angry with them. Curb your anger. Don't be angry with them, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, again, has a wisdom in why this thing happened. That person who wronged you, he'll be accountable, right? That individual will be accountable for, wrong, for wronging you. But how should you deal with it yourself? You should rather have patience with that. And only demand what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made lawful for you. So don't sit and uh, let yourself, you know... Uh, let yourself be burdened by saying, why can't I do such and such thing, right? So many times, people have a pessimistic nature that they come and they say, you know, look at all the things that Allah Ta'ala has forbidden for me. So I can't do anything. You know, have we, we might have said it ourselves. We've heard others saying it also. When you ask them to list off all the different things Allah Ta'ala has forbidden to us, they're pretty much all connected. So they might list off like 20 things, but really it's like four or five things. They end up being connected to one another, right? So for example, they might say, oh, well, he said, you know, I can't eat this thing. You know, I can't go to this restaurant and have this steak. I can't go to this place and, you know, eat this food. I can't go to this place and have this thing. They mention all of these different foods. It's all one. Allah Ta'ala said, don't eat haram, right? Don't eat the haram. What Allah Ta'ala has prohibited on us is much less than what he has allowed for us. It's just a matter of how we look at things. If we have a pessimistic nature, we will always see the negative. And if we have an optimistic nature, we'll always find the, the positive. You know, like we mentioned the, the example of Isa al-Islam, where he said, uh, Prophet Jesus al-Islam, where he was traveling with his companions, and they saw a, uh, a carcass of a dog, a dead dog, and it was stinking. And his companions said, look at this, this dog is... It, it's, it, there's so much stench, horrible smell. But Isa what did he say? He looked at it and he said, but look how perfect its teeth are, shiny, white. 
even in that like something that people couldn't look at, that they couldn't even turn their heads, they couldn't even smell it, still Isa Islam found the the one thing that was still beautiful about it, he found it. Right? This is how we should be always find the positive of uh, the positive of, of what is around us. So don't demand except Allah has made lawful for for you. Subject yourself to the judgment of reason and subject reason to the authority of divine legislation. So what we end up doing is we end up trying to uh, compare the Qur'an and understand the Qur'an through our own logic and reason. That's not how we have to do it. We have to flip this. We have to understand our reason. We have to make our reason line up with what the Qur'an has said, with divine legislation, not the other way around. Because our, our judgment changes. Our culture changes. All of these things are, are, are constantly changing. What we deem to be good today, we might not deem to be good tomorrow, right? And vice versa. I mean, look, marijuana, for example, is now legal. Does that mean it's permissible in Islam? No, it's not, because it's an intoxicant, right? People might have all these questions, what about the lotions and what about this and that, all these other things. Those are different discussions, right? But we're talking about the, what, the, the, what's, the, what's the term they use? Recreational use of marijuana. It's like smoking it, right? They're talking about smoking it. It's not permissible because it's an intoxicant. You know what I mean? So just because society has deemed it to be okay today, yeah. What about like the medical aspect of it? That's cool, right? <laughs> as long as it's not intoxicating, right? So when it comes to, when it, and this is a side note, this will be the discussion regarding like uh, cough medicine and all these types of things too, right? So um, as long as it's not, if it's something like that might contain some type of, like NyQuil, for example, right? That's a common question. Can we take NyQuil or not? There's some, a certain amount of alcohol in it. So it is not allowed because there's alcohol. However, if there is absolutely no halal alternative, then it would be allowed, right? If there's no halal alternative. But there is halal alternative to NyQuil. So you should take the alternative. So same thing when it comes to marijuana, right? If it's going to be, if there is no halal alternative, then it would be allowed, right? But that doesn't mean, uh, I mean, you should seek out other means rather than smoking it because smoking it is detrimental in another form too, right? Yeah. What is the halal? There's other cough medicines that have it. Like, there's a lot of natural remedies and stuff like that, right, that can help you with your sick, sicknesses and stuff. Confused with you know the content of alcohol in drugs or medicines, because is it like the molecule alcohol or does it have to be the wine content? You know, like that kind of. <laughs> That's that a discussion alcohol, of mothers. <laughs> is it alcohol? That alcohol or like the more? Because even um, strep still has alcohol, like like the molecule of alcohol in it. So I'm, I'm a bit. I don't know. <laughs> so. Yeah. I'm gonna answer that from the Hanafi perspective. Okay. Okay. There's a difference. Um, in the Hanafi Madhab, so in every, everyone, wine is completely out, mm-hmm. right? Because wine is completely najis, it is filth in its, to its core. So the only way that would be consumable is if a complete chemical change takes place. And this is also in the Hanafi Madhab, uh, I don't think it's in the Shafi Madhab. Meaning a complete, well maybe to an extent in the Shafi Madhab, a complete chemical change takes place. So meaning the wine changes to vinegar. Right? There is absolutely no wine content left in it. It is, it's complete molecule, molecular, what's the word? Molecular. Right, from a molecular standpoint, a complete change has taken place. It has now become vinegar. That vinegar is now pure. Okay? When it comes to non-wine alcohol, right? So uh, synthetic alcohol, 
Um, that's not wine. Synthetic alcohol is not a problem when it's in foods and stuff like that, unless it's intoxicating. Okay. If it's intoxicating, whatever intoxicates in large amounts will be haram in small amounts. Okay? So if... Uh, now, the discussion will then go to like vanilla and these types of things, right? So vanilla also might have traces of alcohol in it. But no matter how much vanilla ice cream you eat, you're not going to become intoxicated. So vanilla ice cream, according to the Hanafi Madhab, will be per- permissible, right? Um, <clears throat> however, if you drink vanilla straight, it would be intoxicating. That's what I've been told by... People have tried it, right? <laughs> that they, they, yeah, when they were like underage and stuff like that, right? Some of the non-Muslims, my friends I went to school with, they would drink it because they couldn't get, they didn't have access to alcohol. So they would drink it and they said it would give them a buzz. It would intoxicate them. So the actual vanilla extract itself, if it's intoxicating, wouldn't be permissible. If it was wine, right? So there's a difference in the Hanafi mother between wine and non-wine alcohol, right? So, sorry. Yeah. Can I- then can I follow that even if I'm mostly following Shafi? Oh, can For I vanilla? Take that? Yeah. And stuff like that? Um, so, Sheikh Qasim would be better to ask about that because he's a Shafi. Um, but I have had that discussion with him, and, and he said that in a lot of the rulings of food, particularly in America and like the Western world, it's they, the, what the Shafis end up doing is basically adopting the Hanafi standpoint on a lot of things because there's more flexibility in it from the Hanafi madhab, and it becomes a point of difficulty in the Shafi madhab. So that's what I've heard him say for the Shafi madhab. Just become Hanafi, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do... Sorry. Can we just change, like... Like, how do we decide where, who to... Which one we follow? You, um, so you shouldn't flip back and forth. <laughs> you should follow one and just stick to it. And the way to decide that is... You know, when I, I asked the same question when I was in MSA, I was like 18 or 19 years old. Mufti Abdurrahman Mangera, he came. He was an imam in, the, in California, from the UK. I asked him this question and he said, whatever scholar you have access to, follow that madhab. So if you have a Shafi in your locality, then it's fine, be a Shafi. If you have a Hanafi in your locality, it's fine, be a Hanafi. Don't pick something where you don't have access to that scholar. So like the Hanbali madhab, there are no Hanbali scholars here. I don't know of any legitimate Hanbali scholars in America, right? There's very few around the world. There, there might be some, right? But I don't know about them. So the reason you don't want to pick a madhab where it's, it's difficult to find a scholar of that madhab is because if you have a question, who are you going to go to to answer it? That's why, right? Otherwise, it's fine. And you should stick to one. If you just go back and forth, and this whole concept of like, this is a whole like side note, but like the concept of taking rukhsa, right? That... Um, well, I follow this mother, but I'll just borrow from this mother. I follow that mother, I'll borrow this. Mother. That's not okay. Like you only do that when a mufti allows you to on one particular issue. Otherwise, you're not really following anything, right? You're just kind of following your own whims and fancies. You have a question. Oh, and, uh, okay, so when we, when we were using the word alcohol, so like we, uh, I felt like we were using it like interchangeably with like ethanol. Like you know, there's a yeah. series of alcohols like isopropyl, yeah. which you use for rubbing. Yeah. When we're saying alcohol, we're just talking about like the drinking alcohol or, or like rubbing and the other stuff. Right, so that's where it comes down to in the Hanafi mother. First, if it's synthetic alcohol, um, it's best to avoid it, but if you don't, so like synthetic alcohol might be in, um, what's it called, the, uh, the antibacterial, like the rubs, right? What's it called? You don't have to wash it off, like, you know, hand sanitizer, right, the hand sanitizer, right? So it's best if you wash it off before you go for your salah and whatnot. But if you don't, it's not necessarily problematic. Like you'd wash it off as a precautionary measure, right? Because it's synthetic alcohol, so it's not actually filth. You know what I mean? 
So if it is filth, wine is filth. So what does the Hanafi mother view as wine? Anything that comes from dates and grapes. Because of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, where the Sahaba asked him about wine, and he said it comes from these two trees, and he pointed to the, the grapevine and the date palm. So the Hanafi mother takes that, right? The other mothers uh, have a different opinion, right? Like the Shafi mother is more strict on it. But, you know the, but the Heath, I believe you're referring to, it says if a bucket full intoxicates, then are you going to drop us wrong, right? Is that the one? Yeah, that's a different, that's not the date pump. I don't think that's the date pump. Or, or like from previously. So yeah, so if it intoxicates in large amounts, it'll be haram in small amounts. Yeah. So, but, but like, uh, in, the, in the case of like, uh, what is it, soy sauce, I was, I was reading online by Salim Manajid. He was saying, I believe he like said you can't have it, but then like people were saying that if you had a bucket full of soy sauce or you had like really big amounts of soy sauce, you'd probably, like, die before getting intoxicated. Right, so that's going to, again, come down to, like, the mother and stuff like that, right? If there's wine in it, then even a drop of wine, you can't have any of it. Right, even a drop of wine, you can't have any of it. (laughs) Right, so, anyway, going back to the point, um, what are we saying? Right, so we, our, our opinion changes societally. From a societal standpoint, our opinion changes. It varies from today to tomorrow to yesterday. We are constantly changing. We cannot dictate the Qur'an based on what we think is correct today. We have to dictate what we think to be correct, what we find to be correct, based on what the Qur'an says and based on the sunnah of Rasulullah Right? Not even simply one hadith. We are Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, right? The people of sunnah and consensus, not Ahl-Hadith. Because taking, making amal on a single hadith, we might not understand the correct meaning of that hadith, right? We might think it has one meaning, it might outwardly have one meaning, whereas that's not what the Prophet ﷺ intended, right? And that's usually when you have extremist groups, that's what they're doing. They, take, they remove one hadith from the equation and they try and make you know, amal on this one thing. They try and act on this one thing. So we look at the entire picture, which is the sunnah, because the Prophet's life was a uh, guide for what the Qur'an says. Right, so that's what that's the approach that we have to take. Then we go to al adal, right? Al adal is the just. Now that has to be co- uh, connected to al hakam, because in order for Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to just to 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 judge accordingly, He has to have complete justice. This world, this dunya, is not the place of justice. The place of justice is Yom al Qiyamah. That is the day that nobody will be wronged. Right? I might go to a judge today, and they will rule against me. You know, they'll rule against me. But know that Yom Al-Qiyamah is going to come and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to do what's right. You know, there's so many loopholes in the system. There was one individual several years ago. There was somebody who, uh, they went into prison. It was like a second offense or something like that. They went into prison because they had, um, they had sexually molested underaged boys. Okay? They would drug them and then they would sexually assault them. They went into prison and it was initially like a 13-year sentence or something. The lawyer got it cut down to eight years. And the person got out of prison after four years on good behavior. Imagine. Like, second offense to sexually assaulting anyone, let alone a minor. Like, and four years on good behavior. Second offense at that. You know what I mean? At the same time, there was another case that I heard about. Where one uh, husband and wife, they were married, but... The woman had had children from previous marriage. And she got angry with her husband, and she accused him of sexually assaulting her daughter, so his stepdaughter. He said, I didn't do it. The mother testified against him. The daughter testified against him. He got 22 years in prison. Okay? 
the judge said, I, I'm, the reason I'm giving you the extreme sentence is because you're not even sorry for what you did. This individual, he said, look, I didn't do it. How can I apologize for something I didn't do? After he went to prison, the sentence was done. His wife calls the lawyer, calls her lawyer and says, you know, I didn't mean for this to happen. I just wanted to teach him a lesson. They're like, what do you mean? He's like, didn't he do this? She said, no, he didn't actually do this. Right? They told her, they said, well, if you come clean, I mean, know that the prosecutors that were on your side, they're going to come hard against you because you just made a fool out of them. Right? This is the flawed system that we live in. You know? And that's, the, that's life. We have to deal with it. Right? We try and fix it, of course, but it's, it's a flawed system. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's system is perfect. There will be no getting away on that day because, because Allah ta'ala is alim and khabir. He knows everything. Right? He knows inwardly and outwardly everything about us. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's judgment is perfect. And he says, what is, so Al-Adl is actually not mentioned in the Qur'an. This is not mentioned, uh, uh, sorry, this as a name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not mentioned in the Qur'an. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُ بِالْعَدْلِ That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands you to have justice, وَالْإِحْسَانِ and, and excellence, وَإِتَائِذِ الْقُرْبَةِ And to give to your family, وَيَنْهَا عَنِ الْفَحْشَةِ And to prohibit from lewdness and immorality, وَالْمُنْكَرِ And, and um, that which is rejected and wrong وَالْبَغِي and, and to act indecently and rebelliously يَعِذُكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَذَكَّرُونَ He advises you so that you may be mindful. This verse is known as the most jami' verse in the Qur'an, meaning the, the most concise verse that has the most meaning. This verse of Qur'an, it's not the greatest verse of Qur'an. The greatest verse of Qur'an is Ayatul Kursi, right? But this verse gives you the most meaning the most meaning in the fewest amount of words. It covers the entire deen. Right? So this is the virtue that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has linked to Adal. So what does Adal mean? Yeah. This is Surah Nahal. Yeah. It's right before Surah Isra, right? 16th Surah, I think. 14th Bara, 16th Surah, I think. So what does Al-Adal mean? It means like the absolute just. It also means equal, fair, balanced, moderation. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, وَتَمَّتْ كَلِمَةُ رَبِّكَ صِدْقًا وَعَدْلًا That the word of your Rabb, the word of Allah, is accomplished and is perfect, صِدْقًا وَعَدْلًا uh, Truly and justly. لَا مُبَدِّلَ لِكَلِمَاتِهِ That there is nobody who can change His word, وَهُوَ السَّمِيُّ الْعَلِيمُ And He is the all-hearing, the all-knowing. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this, showing that His word is, has adala, has that complete justness in it, right? That whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed is just. No, inshallah we have time, we're going to get into some questions you guys might have. One thing Imam Ghazali mentions, he says that what is linked with these two names, Al-Hakam and Adal, is um, the order of everything. So in order, in order to, for us to be acquainted with Al-Adl, we have to realize the favors that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed upon us. And in order to do this, we have to be well acquainted with the actions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he gives a very complex example about a certain type of cloth that they used to have. Um, and then it's interesting, he says, if your you know, mind is not high enough or capable enough to understand this, and then he goes into like a simpler example. And he says that, look at, the order of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how perfect it is. He has bones, flesh, and skin. He has placed, he, him being just, means that he has placed everything in its due portion. Because what is the opposite of justice? Oppression, zulm. 
what is dhulm? The definition of dhulm, oppression, is to put something out of its place. To do or, or uh, to act on something or to do something or to look at somebody or put somebody in a place that is not, they're not deserving of it. Right? So if I take an innocent person and I put him into prison, that is dhulm because he does not belong in prison. But if it's a criminal and you put them in prison, it is not dhulm because they committed a crime and so they're being punished for it. There's consequences. So he used the example of bones, flesh, and skin. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he has given us our bones and then he has wrapped it with flesh and then he has covered it with our skin. All of these three things are perfect. Imagine if the order was flipped. The bones were on the outside and the skin was on the inside and the flesh was somewhere in between or the flesh was on the outside. This would be horrid, right? Similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed the entire cosmos the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the heavens, the earth, everything is in its exact place. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's justice also because He has put everything in its pro proper place. Think about the seasons. I don't know if we've used this example here before, but think about the seasons. What happens? You have the winter comes, it snows. And the snow sits on the mountains even if not in the cities. It snows in the mountains. And what is snow? Snow is water, right? It's precipitation. It sits on the mountains and doesn't melt away. Then the spring comes and it slowly starts to melt. Not even, not even fast because it's not summer. It melts slowly. As it starts melting, rivers and streams begin to get created. And they begin to flow down from the mountains. As they flow down slowly from the mountains, then it gives water to all of our crops and produce, everything that we need. Then when summer comes, yeah, the snow melts a little bit faster. But we have all the produce there, everything. We have gathered the water because it's melted down from the mountains. Uh, the summer is hot, right? And that gives benefit to the different fruits and vegetables and whatnot. Then summer ends and it's fall. And in the autumn, it starts raining. And so what was removed from us by the heat of the sun in the summer is now replenished by the rain of the fall. This is the perfect like, system of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, putting everything in its exact placing. Then Imam Muzayyad, he mentions that the... the or not Imam Muzayyad, another scholar mentions that the virtue of justice is that there's a hadith wherein Rasulullah said that uh, there will be seven types of people who will be given shade on that day where there is no shade except the shade of Allah right so the shade caused by the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or whatever else he has put on that day there's seven people there's actually more than seven groups of people that will get that shade but these seven things are mentioned in a single hadith and other types are mentioned in other hadith so the first thing mentioned is a just leader that if you are a just leader then there will be, uh, then you will have, uh, what's it called? Shade on Yom Al-Qiyamah. And then he goes on, he mentions, right, the, the youth who grew up in adoration of Allah, the one whose heart is always attached to the masjid, two people who meet and depart solely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, a man who is sought by prominent, beautiful women, a wealthy, a, a woman who has beauty and position in society, and he responds saying, I fear Allah. This was the story of Yusuf al-Islam. Uh, one who gives charity in such secret that his left hand doesn't know what his right hand gave. Meaning that you just give charity secretly. And one who mentions Allah's name only for the sake of remembering Allah and tears flow from him. So all of these things, the reason they are mentioned is because they are things which are not the norm. All of these things are not the norm. How often do we have a just leader? Very rarely. Right? And all of the other things, very rarely. Right? The youth are usually not thinking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're not attached to the masjid. Right? And all these different types of things. People usually like to give charity openly so that they can, because, there's, because they, they might want to show off, right? Not that, I mean, there is, even that is part of the sunnah to give openly because it encourages, right? 
Then Imam al he brings a point. He says, Kullu nafsin maut. That every person shall taste death. And we will test you with evil and with good. As a fitna, as a test, as a trial for you. Uh, and indeed you will return to us. So this brings the discussion of divine, the divine wisdom in suffering. We say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just. So what about all the suffering that's happening, happening around the world? Why is that just? Number one, we have to come out of we have to come out of this dualistic nature where we think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is battling with shaitan. And good is from Allah and shaitan and evil is from shaitan. Good and bad, good and evil are both created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Shaitan is challenging Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but it's not like a battle between the two because there's no competition with Allah. <laughs> You're gonna stand to Allah, right? So we have to understand, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said here, بِالشَّرِّ وَالْخَيْرِ fitna That we will test you with good and with evil as a trial for you. These difficulties will come upon you as a test. And um, some of the ulama, Sheikh Nuh actually, who's a scholar in Jordan, uh, he mentions that there's four categories of people in regards to suffering. Number one is the one who exercises patience. So a person begins to suffer, they exercise patience. That means they're passing the test. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّمَا يُوَفَّ الصَّابِرُونَ أَجْرَهُمْ بِغَيْرِ حِسَابٍ That uh, the patient ones, they will be recompensed full with, with their full reward, without any account. I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give so much to the patient because of the patience they exercise in, in, in undergoing this difficulty. So what is patience in difficulty? It's not that you get angry with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and simply wait out the time. That's not patience. That's just waiting out the time. But patience meaning you continue to do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks of you. You do what is good. You still stay away from bad. You don't try and uh, challenge Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or try to or think that by you disobeying him it's going to be getting back at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's what it means to be patient in times of difficulty so that's the first category the second category he says is one who benefits by learning from the difficulty that's come upon them changing and gaining experience to help himself in the future and he says that this is the way of the Sufis this is the way of the Sufis. And we've had the discussion before about the deviant Sufis and whatnot. We're not talking about them. We're talking about those who are very particular in following the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? right? People like Imam Ghazali, rahimullah. So <clears throat> this is the, their way. Because that individual, he finds benefit from his good and from evil. When this individual does good, he finds benefit in it. And when this individual even does bad, he still finds benefit in it. So what does that mean? When he does good, he thanks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or when goodness comes to him. So this is whether a person actually acts in a good way or is bestowed with some bounty from Allah. He is thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so he benefits by having given thanks to Allah. He pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he benefits from his evil by how? By when he has sinned, he realizes, I have sinned. And he feels that state of heartbrokenness. And he turns to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in repentance. This is that second category. This is a person who benefits from good and from evil by turning and repenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from his evil. Right? And this individual also, again, they have patience. Yeah. Can you say the first one again? The first one was uh, simply a person ha exercises patience in time of difficulty. So the second, so weren't there like two parts of that? And like the first part is what you should do and the second part is what you shouldn't do? Yeah. yeah, I was explaining what it means to have sabr. Yeah. So the second part, it was like, is it only if 
not being patient leads to like disobeying God, if that's the only tendency. That what? Because like I feel like this ties into what I was asking last week about are you held accountable for your thoughts? Yeah. So what if you're not really that patient, like, but you're not actually like using that to disobey? Yeah, if you're not disobeying Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, then then that you're still you can still be passing the test, right? Mm-hmm. So when a difficulty comes upon you. You might still be, you know, there's, there's those who might still engage in their salah and their fasting and everything else they're supposed to be doing, right? Good to people. But they feel that anger with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That why are you doing this to me? That is also, like, to be angry with Allah is also sinful, right? So that, even though you're still, I mean, the chances of you being angry with Allah and still doing what He asks of you are very little, right? Um, but... Sabr uh, in this case means that you do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking you and you, you don't you leave what is happening to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you don't try to challenge Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or get angry with Him, right? So the first category was simply to have patience. So you, you do that. The second category is that you learn. You have patience, of course, but you learn from what's happened. So you are thankful in, in the case of good, and that brings you closer to Allah. And if you have done bad or if bad has come upon you, then uh, you turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for help if it's like some outside factor, Right, something bad happened to you. You, I don't know, your car broke down or something. Right, you turn to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala for help, and you say, you know, oh Allah, I'll be patient or what, whatnot. Um, or if you do some evil, then you find benefit in that also by turning to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in repentance. Okay, so the first one was you simply had patience. The second one is you learn something from this incident. And he says that this is this is what. Um, sorry, then the third category is one who is actually pleased with the difficulties. That's hard to understand. But there are actually those few individuals who they're actually pleased with tests and difficulties that come upon them. That when difficulty comes upon them, they almost welcome it. They're like, let's, let's do this. You know? They get almost happy. Like, not happy like, okay, somebody, a family member dies. You don't become happy like, yes, this person died. No. But like, okay, this difficulty came upon me. They realize this is my chance to shine with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And this brings a spiritual increase. Uh, and this is, this brings a spiritual increase and means that this person is from the awliya. If you actually welcome difficulty, that means you're from the awliya because that's a very high status, right? You can be a wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and be lower than that category. But if you have reached that category, that means you have, you have wilaya, right? There's one incident regarding suffering and whatnot. And so, yeah, so this, what happened is with two companions of the Prophet married couple, seem to be living a happy life. And the wife comes to her husband. You know, he comes home one day and she tells him that, uh, let's go to the messenger of Allah, I want to divorce you. I want to divorce. He says, why do you want to divorce? She says, I just, I want to divorce. He says, okay, let's go. They're on their way and he, on the, on the way he breaks his leg. Something happens, he falls, he breaks his leg. She then begins to help him, she nurses him. After, you know, they, whatever, tie a stint or whatever to him, she says, let's go back home. He says, what happened? I thought you wanted to divorce me. She said, no, not anymore. He said, what happened? She said, because you live such a good life, I feared that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had forsaken you. But by seeing this difficulty upon you, I know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still loves you. So let's go back home. This is that state, right? This is that state that the companions had. This is that state that of knowing that difficulty is, that Allah, when difficulty comes upon us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to bring us closer to Him. And this is that moment to shine. So he brings an example of uh, a Shaykh Shibli, rahimahullah. 
he's usually spoken about the book spoken about in the books of tasawwuf and whatnot that he says that allah's raising the spiritual degrees of his servants is commensurate with their distress and the commentary on this is that had he poured upon the awliya in even an ant's weight of what he has poured upon the prophets they would have melted away and been cut off that the highest awliya if they even took an ant's weight of what was on the prophets and messengers they wouldn't have been able to take it what does that tell us Right. Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she said that after watching the difficulty and the fever and the sickness of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa what he experienced at the time of his death, I never, I never thought negative about anyone else who experienced difficulty in their death. Because she knew the most beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Prophet sallallahu If he's experiencing this difficulty at the moment of his death, then, I mean, obviously Allah is not displeased with the Prophet sallallahu right? So if somebody else is going undergoing a, a very difficult situation it doesn't mean Allah Ta'ala is displeased with them he's just allowing you this opportunity to to raise in spiritual ranks that was the third category to actually be pleased with the tests that are, are put upon us and the last category is one who becomes bitter and resentful of Allah's decree right and this is what is displeasing to Allah it means that one is fall it means uh, uh, that a person is failing in this test so if you become bitter and resentful to Allah that shows that you are failing in this test, unless sometime within that, even afterwards, you turn back around to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you repent. So this is like, goes back to again the rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That He, you know, always He's looking for a way out for you. So what did we say? Every sin is forgivable except for shirk. But shirk is also uh, forgivable if you repent from it. So similarly, if you become bitter with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah will protect us from that. But you can repent from it and then you come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? A person, sometimes a person committing a sin, I'm not saying that we should go out and try to commit sins, but a person committing a sin sometimes becomes, is that, that sin becomes a means for this individual to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than a person who doesn't ever sin. Because a person who doesn't ever sin, they might become arrogant and then they might fall into the greatest sin, right? Look at Iblis. They say it is said about him that not a single place in this world exists except that he made ibadah on it. The biggest alim, right, the biggest abid to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The angels used to come to him and say that we have heard that there will be an individual who have, has a high place with Allah, but he will fall. He will lose the favor of Allah. Supplicate that it is not us. The angels didn't even have it in them to sin, but they asked Iblis to make the supplication. And he supplicated to about every one of them except for himself. Except for himself he supplicated, right? So what happened? He wasn't sinning, but then when he sinned, complete arrogance. The worst of sins, right? Jealousy and arrogance, and he fell. And then he was cursed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whereas a person might, be, might actually commit a sin, and then what happens? They actually feel remorse and regret, and they turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in repentance. Sometimes a person, I mean, there's individuals I know that have gone out and fornicated, and then they, like, they feel so, uh, re- so much remorse from that action that they completely change their life afterwards. So should they have done that thing? No, they shouldn't have. Was that action pleasing to Allah? No, it wasn't. But how they dealt with it afterwards was so pleasing to Allah that He, uh, Allah Ta'ala raised them in status, raised them in maqam, and brought Him close. Yeah. So um, the, the saying that uh, Iblis, he, he did such that everywhere... Is that, is that like merely a saying, uh, or is it, is it based on evidence, or is it just like said to like really emphasize that he, he was like chopped and worshipping? 
Are you saying that, it, are you asking, do people just say it? Well, I mean, I mean like, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, written in the, it's written in the books. I don't, I don't remember if it's a hadith or not, or the level of the hadith. I think I, it may be a hadith, but I don't remember the level of authenticity of the hadith. That answers your question. Yeah. Just mention them off. So, no, like, I mean, like, what is the difference between, or like, what are these catchphrases? Yeah. I mean, what is the, these are ca- these are when suffering happens. When suffering happens, then people fall into one of four categories. So these are the categories. Right, so one, <clears throat> so a person who is bitter with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala and and uh, um, and is resentful, then it means that they are failing the test unless they turn their back on shaitan and the nafs and they choose the way of repentance then you will gain your favor with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala one of the mashayikh he used to say that I have not seen triumph except in humiliation I have not seen triumph except in humiliation he was speaking more specifically about the nafs right that the lower self that you will have triumph after you humiliate your nafs yourself but in a larger degree it's explained that what the, the dark night of the soul, it precedes the dawn of illumination. So we've heard the saying, the night is darkest before the dawn, right? What does that mean? That when you reach your lowest point, know that there's an opening for you. And oftentimes, the, when we're in difficulty, definitely, when we're in difficulty and suffering, the amount of spiritual progress we can make to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is like infinite, it's exponential. We could spend years of time in ibadah and supererogatory works, but the amount of gain that we will have by turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a time of difficulty is exponentially greater than a life of no difficulty and, and a life of complete submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Albeit, you know, considering that you continue your submission in that time of difficulty. Then the, the ulama, they mentioned that, <clears throat> this is not mentioned in Imam Ghazali's book, but the ulama mentioned that discussing the concept, we'll finish off here in a couple minutes, that the, regarding pain, pain and suffering. So even this is rahmah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even this is justice to the world. Why? How much benefit comes out of pain and suffering? And again, not to that, say that we should go and try and inflict pain and suffering or let people have pain and suffering. It is our duty that when somebody is suffering, we try and remove their suffering, right? We try and remove that. That is our duty. Um, and we would be asked about that also, right? That did you, did you try and help somebody out of their difficulty, right? When you, when you were able and you saw them and you were able to do it and you, why did you turn, uh, turn away, right? That's why there's so much emphasis on sadaqah and whatnot, yeah. Um, are we accountable for other people's suffering? We're accountable to try and help them out of their suffering. That's what we'll be asked. So if somebody's suffering, that's not necessarily our fault, unless it is our fault because we did something, right? <laughs> that you're accountable for. But we should try and remove their suffering, right? I mean, that doesn't mean you bankrupt yourself in, in trying to, like, you know, raise money or something like that. That's not what that means, right? Moderation in everything. But um, when we're able, we try and help somebody out, you know? Um, now, regarding pain and suffering in the world, the ulama say that pain experienced unbearably by an individual, it benefits the rest of society. How? Because it benefits the rest of society in understanding the need and endeavor to avoid it. So when pain and suffering happens, then society understands that, oh, this, like, oh my God, this is horrible, right? How can we avoid this? How can we make sure this situation doesn't happen again? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed pain and suffering to be there so that we can 
make the situation better, right? Death benefits because simply, I mean, the world would be overpopulated. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has brought death there, right? Also, um, death is there. What are some of the benefits of the cause of death? Of death is to know its causes. What causes death, right? Uh, this is a lot, I mean, a lot of so many safety regulations, whatnot, come about because a person was reckless on the road, right? Most of the laws and rules in place are, I mean, it's funny, like I was talk, speaking to my mother and she was telling us how in our time, like when I was a child, there weren't all these rules about baby seats and car seats and all these types of things. It was just kind of like do it, don't do it, whatever, right? Now there's all these regulations. Probably because somebody who is seen as, you know, um, some standing in, the, in society had a child that died from a car accident. And they said, man, if this child was in a proper car seat, this might not have happened. So then these laws and regulations came into effect. And what happened? Society benefited after that, right? Um, <clears throat> even he says that the rise and fall of nations, it provides studies and enhancement to future generations by building on past cultures, tools, writings. So when a society rises and falls, then we can look, we're able to, to have a better understanding of what happened. Why did they fail? How can we improve? We can look at what their works were. We can study their technology. We can study so much about their society and try and improve, right? So this, this is that concept um, of natural selection and whatnot. Those types of things take place, right? Um, they write that when the innocent are abused, then laws come into existence. When there is sickness, then medicines are developed. And of the species that interact with their environment in complex ways. So all the species that have some type of interaction with their environment in some complex method or another, there's very few examples of nature except that benefit comes from it through pain, uh, without pain. So whatever, is, whatever species is, is interacting with, with its environment in a complex way, in order to understand and benefit it, benefit from it, some type of pain or suffering had to have taken place. So even in all of that, there is a mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He has allowed us to take these types of benefits. So much more gain is made. I mean, look at, you know, you look at, and so it's interesting, right? We're supposed to learn from our history. If we don't learn from our history, then what have we really accomplished? You know, and that's what like all these talks, political discussions are happening now. Right? The blacks went through their civil rights movement, the Japanese went through the internment camps, and now they're talking about these things again, like 50, 60 years later, 40 years later. These types of discussions are coming out again. What have we, what, how have we progressed as a, as a society? We're supposed to learn from those things. Right? We're supposed to learn from those things. You know? So like some people saying that, oh, the Japanese internment camps, um, you know, Roosevelt did what was necessary at the time. Really? Like this is the, America views this as its lowest point in its history. <laughs> Right? 120,000 families were put into internment camps, more concentration camps more or less. Shouldn't we have learned from that? Aren't we supposed to learn from all of these things? So not that those things were good, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows these things to happen. One is a test for those undergoing it, and then so that society can, can understand and become better after it. Right? Inshallah, we'll end there. Any questions? Yeah. Uh, Al-Ghazali, the 99 names, beautiful names of Allah. <clears throat> so these two names are definitely connected. and right. We're not gonna, in summary, like, we're not going to understand everything that happens from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just and that there is a just, we can benefit 
through it, right? We just have to have an optimistic approach, and we have to try and make things better. So we have to try and end suffering, right? If there is suffering, we should, it should help us realize that, like, what causes it, right? So a lot of wars and stuff happening around the world, like, we should learn that there's greed of power is a bad thing. That's what's causing a lot of the suffering that's happening around the world, right? It's greed of power, trying to expand your, your dominion and whatnot. So we should learn from these things. <coughs> no other questions? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, is there a hadith that says that uh, if you guide someone to do wrong, you share the sin? I mean, it's true. <laughs> oh, okay. If you guide someone to do wrong, right? Um, I can't think of one, but yeah, that's right. You show somebody to, to do wrong. Um, there is something. There is something to that extent. If there's like, something about um, not showing off your bad deeds because, like, someone might be influenced. Right. That's that's one aspect. I think there is something even more direct than that. Right. If you show somebody how to sin, you're the cause of that. You're the tool for that. Then. Right. I'll look it up, inshallah. Right, there's that example also, right? The sons of Adam and Islam. So the one who murdered the other, he, he, he showed humanity the, the sin of murder. So all the murder that takes place in the world from his time till the end falls on his head. He has a share in all of it. Right, so don't show people how to sin. Right, that's why, yeah, you're not supposed to talk about your own sins. Because one, Allah Ta'ala covered it for you. He made it, he, from His mercy, He veiled you from it. And you're throwing that favor away. And second, you might be inspiring other people to sin also. And then you have a share in that. Is it true that uh, if you open up the curtain on the sin that's been uh, like covered for you, that it won't be forgiven? I mean, forgiveness is for Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. You know? But uh, what, what, ha- what happens is on Yom Al-Qiyamah, if you have sinned, and Allah Ta'ala veiled it, Right, and you don't expose it, and you don't expose other people's sins. Allah Taala will veil those sins on Yom Al Qiyamah also. You know, yeah, people finally have to go, so we have to wrap up. Allahumma anta salamin kassalam tabarakti ala al-jalali wa al-ikram. Sami'na wa ta'ana ghufrana karabna wa lakin nasir. Allahumma qfilna dhunubna wa tahir qulubna wa hasin furujna. Allahumma anna nas'aluka min khayri ma as'alaka minhu nabiyuka Muhammadun sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa na'udhu bika min sharri ma as'ta'adha minhu nabiyuka Muhammadun sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa anta al-musta'an wa alikul balaq wa la hawla wa la quwata illa billahi al-aliyya al-azim subhana rabbika rabbil azzati amma yasifun wa salamun al-munasaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen